0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay,
1: all the bad and all the good today. Was there more or less of each of those things in the past? If you're talking about every single thing in the world, it's very easy to feel like we have a uniquely worse time today than we did in the past. And I think that is the part that is prone to cognitive illusion.
2: I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild. A show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I am not immune from what has become a broad social lament, that we, the world, everyone out there has become less moral, less kind, less connected to good values. I write about this thing called a moral aloneness in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life. Moral aloneness is a particular kind of loneliness that we feel when we become disconnected from the matrix of life, the mores, the ethical fabric that keeps us aligned as humans. I argue that a bunch of factors, technology, but mostly neoliberalism, has seen the moral umpires kicked off the footy field of life. And so things have become a depraved free-for-all where ex-presidents incite insurrections and we all troll and hate speech each other into Wild West vortexes. This lament, of course, fuels Trump's campaign, Make America Great Again, and other anti-progressive leaders who've come into power in recent years, appealing to populist bases with the idea that we used to be better and we just need to return to the days of yore. However, two Harvard psychologists have just blown this whole theory out of the water. Daniel Gilbert, who wrote Stumbling on Happiness, and you might recall that book, it was a bestseller, and who did that TED Talk on happiness myths, again, it was one of the most popular TED Talks in history, he's joined forces with Adam Mastrioni to write a paper that recently appeared in Nature magazine. It collected 235 surveys from around the world, with over 574,000 responses in total. And it found that, overwhelmingly, people believe that humans are less kind, honest, ethical and moral today than they were in days gone by. Now, respondents in every country that has ever been surveyed, and that's about 52 countries so far, have believed the world is in moral decline and that life was better in the past, and have done so ever since pollsters started asking about this phenomenon back in 1949. What's more, All those surveyed over these 70 years or so think the decline happened, that the world got worse, wait for it, at around the time they were born, give or take. Now, all of this is fascinating. But also, it turns out that all these people, me included, would be wrong. Or at least our beliefs about the world getting worse are not informed by rational information. Now, my guest today is, in fact, Adam Mastrioni. He co-wrote the paper, and he's a stand-up comic and experimental psychologist who has made a name for himself debunking a bunch of different assumptions about life and humanness over at his Substack experimental history. Indeed, his posts have become so popular that he now makes a full-time income from Substack. Now, I wanted to talk to Adam because I've been feeling lately, I want a bunch of my assumptions seriously challenged. As I take this conversation we're having here on Wild together into realms that that open up divides in thinking and that demand more compassion and understanding, I feel this is something of a responsibility. Although perhaps Adam will tell me this assumed division is also wrong. Now, once again, I'm currently travelling around a bit, somewhat itinerant, in, in part to meet more wild minds on the other side of the world, out in the wild. So my recordings can be a little bit sketchy at times. Before I spoke to Adam, I'd been for a massive hike. I'd been very ambitious, thinking I could get over a mountain range in the French Alps and then do a four hour sort of hike run in under two hours and eat lunch at a remote auberge at the top. Then steer my camper van I've rented back down from the Alps to a town with Wi Fi in plenty of time to set up for our chat together. Now, I wound up parking illegally in an alleyway and pulling out my recording equipment at the camp table with one minute to spare. cow manure all over my shoes and my hair was plastered to my face. I'll share photos of all of this on Substack if you'd like some visuals. The point is, the Wi-Fi was sketchy, so mostly I have to let Adam talk because there was quite a delay and I missed a lot of what he was saying. But thankfully, he's a great talker. Okay, let's join Adam. Adam. Adam Mastriani, thank you so much for joining us here on Wild. You're a big deal on Substack, which is a big deal in 2023. It's funny, isn't it, how blogs have had a bit of a renaissance, mostly, I think, because of Substack, especially among academics and big thinking writers. You're quite prolific and you've got a lot of followers. So tell me how you as an academic are using Substack.
1: I use Substack to be me. I I have to play a different role when I'm writing for an academic journal, which is something I'm trying not to do anymore, where I have to you know, speak a different language. I have to use words that people don't understand. I have to pretend that every finding is life changing when it really isn't. I have to pretend that I understand why everything has happened when I really don't. And when I'm writing on Substack and in my own voice, I can drop all those pretenses and I can make jokes and I can say like, hey, here's study eight. I forgot why we ran it. Uh, if you know, you could write to us and, and tell us. And it feels so good when you are used to professionally basically impersonating someone else, impersonating the scientist version of yourself to instead speak as you do. When I started writing on Substack, it felt like that scene in the first Indiana Jones movie where he has like a staff that has a ruby at the top of it and he he finds this underground map and he like sticks the staff into the right place and the sun like comes through the crystal and illuminates the place on the map where the treasure is buried. It feels like I'm doing that, like I am in alignment with the universe in a way that I didn't feel before. So I guess that's, that's what I use it to do. I use it to be a ruby at the top of the staff,
2: <laughs> I, I love. That's a very unacademic and very unscientific way of putting it, and perfectly Substacks. And I get it. I'm a little the same. You can also build a community who are at the level at which you're writing. And perhaps they want to be extended a little more and that's why they come to you. But it certainly does not attract trolls. It attracts people who are there to learn. But Adam, I'm intrigued to know where your academic peers sit with all of this, because of course, you also wrote a Substack post about the whole role of the peer-reviewed study, which of course, is peak science speak for justifying their Their place and their process and the whole way that they go about things. For those of you who are listening, a peer-reviewed study is one of the, I guess, the pillars that can contribute to a study being considered eventually as gold standard. And a lot of scientists hang their hat on this notion of the peer review, but you've kind of criticised it, which I imagine garnered a bit of criticism.
1: Yeah. I mean, it elicited extreme reactions from both sides. So I had a lot of people going, yeah, I've always felt this and thanks for saying it. And I had, I think one of your Australian brethren tell me that I, that I was engaging in metacognitive polywaffle, which I don't know if it's it a polywaffle. I think it's, is it a candy bar or something?
2: It is. It is. It's, it's a phrase that we use to say, let's just call it as it is, bullshit.
1: Yes, I got I got the impression that it wasn't a good thing to be doing. So I had both reactions. In fact, one a tenured professor at a university left a comment on my post saying, "Like Adam, are you still employed at Harvard? Like I'm a Harvard alum. I have concerns about your ability to to mentor students. This is a big issue. I mean, fortunately, I wasn't at Harvard anymore at that point. But I had never had my job threatened on the internet um, for for just saying stuff that I didn't think was all that controversial." So yeah, I had extreme reactions on on both sides.
2: Yeah, which is great. It means you're doing your job well. And if you're getting information out there and getting people thinking differently, then I do believe it's a great thing. And from what I understand from the way that you work and from having read your Substack, you put notes, you know, to everything, you put references, all that kind of stuff. So if people want to look into the veracity of what you're saying, they can do so. And, you know, you often get called to account. You come and do podcasts. You then go on to take some of your findings and publish them in esteemed journals. Which brings me to a study which you recently published in Nature magazine. You co-published it with Daniel Gilbert from Harvard. And essentially, from what I gather, you basically show that you know we all think the world was better in times gone by, that we've become less honest, less kind, less ethical. Your study shows something very particular. Can you describe what that is?
1: Yeah, we call this the illusion of moral decline, which that word often gets me into trouble because people are like, well, what is morality? And what I mean by it here is the way that people treat one another in the course of their everyday lives. So things that we might call friendliness or kindness, honesty, goodness, niceness. Now, obviously, there's a lot of disagreement about what is good and what is bad. And obviously, people have been trying to solve that problem for thousands of years. We haven't gotten there yet. We're not going to get there in this paper. So what we tried to do is say, okay, look, we're going to set aside Any of the issues where we think there's reasonable disagreement about what's a good thing to do and a bad thing to do, and whatever is left at the center of that Venn diagram, where pretty much any reasonable person would say, yeah, I agree that that is what niceness is. We're going to look at that and ask, has that changed over time? And so there's three big parts to the paper. In the first part, we ask, do people think that that interpersonal goodness has decreased over time? The answer is resoundingly yes. The second part is, is there any evidence that people could be right about this? The answer is no. And in the third part, we propose an explanation for why people might think that this has happened, even if it hasn't happened.
2: Mm, And it was something of a meta study because you looked at, I think, 235 surveys, which amounted to, I think, 574,000 responses in total. And these studies, these surveys, go back to when these kinds of questions were first examined, which was, I think, 1949. So it's a fairly wide study that, you know, of people and responses that you you looked at. But what you found, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, we all tend to think that morality has declined. And when I say all, you're saying that it's quite consistent in the 52 odd countries around the world that these surveys cover.
1: Yes, and those numbers that you just cited are all for the just the first part of the paper. Just where we're looking at, do people believe that this has happened? When you include everything that we did, so looking at has it happened, we get close to 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 twelve million observations from all over the world. Obviously, we're we're collecting a lot of data that other people have collected before us, so we have a head start. But so we're putting together a lot of data that had previously existed, but it had never been assembled, and then we added some some of our own on top. So so yes, this first question: Do people think? That people are less good to one another than they used to be. Do they think they're less ethical, that they're more likely to lie or commit crimes? The answer is yes, all over the world. So we ask this question in a bunch of different ways. Other people ask this question in a bunch of different ways as well. doesn't really seem to matter all that much which way you ask the question. You can ask, are people less moral than they used to be? People will say yes you can ask, do people treat each other with less kindness today than they did 20 years ago? People go, yes. Even if you ask, this is one of my favorite questions, do you think that people really used to treat each other with more respect and courtesy in the past? Or is this just nostalgia for a past that never existed? Over 75% in this case of Americans will say, no, this isn't nostalgia for a past that never existed. (laughs) This really happened. People are less good to one another now than they used to be.
2: And the interesting thing is that this has been what we've all been saying for 70 odd years, we all tend to think that times were better in days gone by. Now, the really interesting thing to this is now, first of all, you do establish that we would be wrong in thinking this, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the other aspect to this is that we tend to think that the moral decline occurred, oh, you know, give or take a year or two after we were born. So things were great, Then we were born and then things declined. And it doesn't matter if you're 80 years old or if you're 20 years old, that is a consistent belief. I mean, that is kind of strange, right? It's very self-centric for starters, but what is the basis to that? Let's maybe start there as to why it is we think that it starts in and around when we came into existence.
1: Yeah. So we ran a bunch of studies trying to get at, since when do people think that things have declined? Because people's answer to that question might give us a clue as to why they think it's declined. So for instance, it could have been that everyone says, you know, things were great in the fifties and now they're bad. And that would give us a clue as to like, okay, there's something that we've all learned about the fifties that leads us to believe that things were better then. maybe this has to do with what you learn in school or the movies or TV that you watch. Instead, what we find as we ask people to go further and further into the past, they say things were better, better, better. The, the, you know, the, the line goes up and up and up until around the time that people were born. And I think this gives us a big clue as to what's going on here, because, well, what happens between the time you were born, right before you were born and right after? Well, somewhere around there, you start having firsthand experiences and memories. And we think that there's a lot of reasons why people might think that morality has declined, but a big reason might be a memory bias. And in fact, this explanation is two parts. So the first part is that we know that people predominantly encounter negative information about people that they don't know personally. In the media, they call this, if it bleeds, it leads, right? If you, if you watch the news, if you read the paper, the main thing you will hear about is the bad behavior of prominent people. Um, you will hear about embezzlement and fraud and murder. This is what the world looks like beyond the borders of your personal world. It looks pretty bad. But that alone isn't enough to create the illusion that things gotten, have gotten worse. For that, you need a second phenomenon, which we know from memory research um, is that the badness of bad memories tends to fade faster than the goodness of good memories. So I can give you an, an example of how, the, how this might work. If you get turned down for a school dance when you're in high school, it feels pretty bad at the time. But 20 years later, it's maybe a funny story, right? It doesn't hurt as bad as it did at the time. The badness of that memory tends to fade. Maybe it even flips to a good memory because later on you met your soulmate. And how lucky I was to you know have not started a relationship with this person that would have been terrible for me. But on the, on the flip side, if you have a great school dance, if you don't get turned down, you go with your sweetheart, have a nice time. 20 years later, when you remember it, it still feels pretty good. Not as good as it did to experience it or maybe the next day or maybe a week later, but still pretty good. And this general trend seems to be how memories work on average. The bad things and the good things lose their badness and goodness, but the bad things fade faster. And it totally Mm. makes sense that the mind would work this way. This is part of how we maintain positive opinions about our lives, that we minimize the bad things, we rationalize them, we distance ourselves from them, we explain them away. The good things we don't really need to do that to, and so they fade less quickly. This isn't true, of course, for every single memory. So traumatic memories are ones that that buck this trend, right? So they're th- bad things that happened to you at the time, and they still feel as bad or, or worse later. But most memories aren't traumatic memories. Most memories exhibit this trend where the good ones both fade, but the bad ones fade faster. And if you can combine that with the fact that we predominantly encounter bad about the world that's beyond our little corner you get this illusion where every day the world out there looks bad and every day it seems like it was better yesterday but if we had asked you yesterday you would have said it seems bad today but it was better the day before and there's no point that we can go back and ask you where you say yes today is the good day
2: so i mean really i think today if we look at the discourse happening on twitter on various social media platforms a lot of it is about how bad things are today that We've got far less robust values, bifurcation is at an all-time high, you know, there's cancel culture, there's the whole woke versus non-woke sort of stuff going on. You know, we feel like we're in this world of the worst conflict ever. I mean, I've got to ask you, Adam, I know that you comment on this, you're alive to it, given this thesis, is there an element of truth to where we are in the world today? Because I'll throw in there also, of course, the climate crisis, where we're at with the Me Too movement, as well as what's happening in your country with the election coming up in 2024. So yeah, tell me what you think there. Is this a case of cognitive biases at play or, or is this stuff real?
1: Yeah, I mean, those things are real. Those things are bad. You know, the the climate crisis is really bad. People yelling at each other on the internet is bad. Our government leaders being dishonest is bad. The world is full of bad things. The world is also full of plenty of good things. You know, every day people are born and survive. Planes land. People land jobs and get married. And the question of which of these predominates, which is the right way to think about the world, should we think about all the happy things or all the bad things? I, I really, I don't think there's a scientific answer to that question. That comes down to to your opinion. What do you think defines the world? But there is mixed in there an empirical question, which is, okay, all the bad and all the good today, was there more or less of each of those things in the past? And that's, a, that's another complicated question because if you're talking about every single thing in the world, you have, you know you're, I only wrote one paper about one small part of this, but I can at least tell you there that it's very easy to feel like we have a uniquely worse time today than we did in the past. People feel like things are uniquely bad today. We didn't used to have these problems. And I think that is the part that is prone to cognitive illusion because it's really hard to know what the past was like, even if you lived through it. So, for instance, I mean, I grew up in the 90s in the U.S. And if you ask me, you know, what were the 90s like? I could go like, oh, yeah, I totally know what the 90s were like. There were cartoons on TV and Bill Clinton was president. And and I don't actually know what the 90s were like for the world. I know what it was like for me in my little corner of the world. And so the mistake that I make is extrapolating my own experience to what it's like to be a person anywhere. And so I think that is the part that is prone to cognitive bias.
2: Yeah. And look, your paper looks specifically at morality, our perceptions of morality, kindness, goodness, those kinds of things, as opposed to material conditions. And one implicates the other, of course. Before we move on to, I guess, more implications around this study, there was one other kind of weird little, I don't know, bias going on that you examined. You found that on top of the fact that people feel that the moral decline began after they arrived on the planet, another sort of weird anomaly is that people exempt their own social circles from this decline. And in fact, you found that they think the people that they know are nicer than ever. Can you explain that particular part of the study?
1: So this is another study that we ran because we had this theory that this has to do with what you hear about the world that's beyond your own personal borders, plus a memory bias. So the way that, that this model that we propose works is that you mainly see bad things, the bad things phase faster than the good things, and that's why you get this decline over time. If you turned off one of those switches, you could produce an illusion of moral improvement or even or less of an, an illusion of moral decline. And we thought one place where that switch might be flipped is in people's personal worlds. There, people don't predominantly encounter bad information or negative information of people that they know. Mainly, they have positive experiences um, with the people that they know and love and interact with on a day-to-day basis. And so if that's true, then it might be that people would mistakenly think that they've gotten better over time. So instead of everyday people saying things are bad and they've gotten worse, everyday people here would be saying things are good and they've gotten better. And that's what we find when we ask people to think of individuals that they have known for the past 15 years, tell us what they're like today and tell us what they were like 15 years ago. They say they are better. And this is one of the only cases in any of our studies where people say some group of people is better today than they used to be. And so what we have is a bunch of people that are basically standing on their own little islands and saying, my island's getting better. It's all the other islands that are getting worse. But if you visit those other islands, they're saying the same thing. So somebody's got to be wrong here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I find it so interesting that it's all about our self-referential bubble. And you can see the evolutionary principle behind that. It's in our interest to think that the people around us and the circumstances that we know to be true or that are familiar are good. And then the other. You know, out there is the problematic entity, is the thing that is lesser than our little crew over here, our personal tribe. And it's so interesting just to see these kinds of biases at play. You know, you you only have to go to a dinner party or a barbecue and see how we all talk in this language of, well, we're like this, but those people out there, you know, they're thinking this particular way. And in fact, I think you wrote a Substack post about this very phenomenon, about how we all think the general public is stupid. They're less intelligent than us. And of course there's a whole range of biases going on there. Can you perhaps, you know, jump ahead and talk about what you found when you were writing up that Substack post?
1: Yeah. So th- this is I think one of the unfortunate legacies of psychology is I mean much like that paper I just wrote we're all about cognitive biases and all the ways that people misperceive the world around them. Obviously this is part of the way that I make my living uh, is discovering these things and telling people about them. But when you do that you can end up with this picture of humanity that's like you know we're all riddled with cognitive biases, we're all so stupid. And it's really easy to feel that way about people that you don't know very well. So one very useful psychological phenomenon to talk about those with is, is called construal, which is, which is just basically you can imagine things in greater detail or lesser detail. And when you imagine things in lesser detail, like you do with people who are farther from you or people you don't know that well, it's easy to assume that they're very simple. That, oh, people vote this way because they're dumb people take these jobs and do these things because they're stupid. And then it feels like we have all of this scientific research backing this up. Oh, yes, they're all they're subject to all these cognitive biases. They're just suffering from confirmation bias. But of course, we exempt ourselves from that because it doesn't feel like we are biased, because if it felt like you were biased, you would obviously just undo the biases. But that's the whole point about them is that they're difficult to undo. You don't feel like you're doing them when you're doing them. And I think that this Mm. is is just the totally wrong way to think about humans. And especially the error is to think that other people are different. That people actually do a pretty good job administering their lives. They deal with a lot of complicated information. Often when someone looks like they're foolish, it may be because they're doing things that make sense to them that don't make sense to us, or they're dealing with constraints that aren't obvious to us. And so, I think it's it's unfortunate if what we take away from research, like the research that I do, is oh look how stupid people are. I think in my case, I've you know I've identified this illusion that the that people treat each other worse than they used to, but the the things that cause that illusion are actually pretty good things that the mind does. One one is focus on potentially dangerous information, which is a pretty good thing to do when you're in a dangerous environment, maybe less so today when our environments are less immediately dangerous than they used to be. And the second is, you know, rationalizing bad things and savoring good things. It's actually good, I think that the mind works in this way. It just has this downside.
2: a really big part of understanding these biases and i think you know i guess around about 10 years ago understanding cognitive biases became a real thing didn't it on some of these podcasts and reddit groups and so on but one of the concerns that these biases can lead to and when we're talking about believing that there was a golden age that existed you know well shortly before we were born is that it can have implications politically, particularly at the moment in the US and in other parts of the world where there is a turn towards uh, more conservative and authoritarian governments. So I know that you cite this in your paper, that 76% of Americans believe that addressing the moral breakdown of the country should be one of the government's priorities. And of course, we've seen Trump at the 2016 election, and then of course, at the you know in the lead up to the 2024 election, talking about making America great again, which implies that America was once good, it's gone to rack and ruin, and he's going to bring it back. Now, The problem with this, of course, and Adam, I don't know how you feel about this, is that if we're looking to the past as the ideal, then we see people turning to conservatism because conservatism is about turning back to the way things were, you know, the status quo, looking back to bygone eras, whether it's the 80s or the 50s, whereas progressives, the left, normally look forward. To change and and improvement and new ideas. So if we've got this cognitive bias that sees us leaning backwards to the way things were, you can probably, you know, understand that it'd be fairly easy for an authoritarian figure to come in and, you know, just talk about returning to these bygone golden eras as their, their platform, which can be really problematic. Is that something that you feel is a problem?
1: For sure. So when I give talks about this research, I start with the end of Donald Trump's inauguration speech from team when he was inaugurated. And he ends with, we'll make America wealthy again. We'll make America safe again. We'll make America proud again. We'll make America great again. And I argue that the most important word in those claims is not you know, proud or safe or great or in America. It's again, because that word does a lot of work. It suggests that Things are bad now, but they were once good, and it's possible for them to be good once more. And that really resonates with people. I mean, this is something that authoritarian leaders or aspiring authoritarian leaders have tried to do for millennia, which is hearken back to a time that people think was good and promise to restore it. The problem, of course, being that were those times actually that good? Often they're not. And is it really possible to bring them back? Often it isn't. I mean, two, I think, interesting things from what you said about this being more useful to conservative politicians. I do think that's true in that you know, it's hard to claim to, for instance, the Democratic Party that we should go back to 1950 because they'll say, well, what about the fact uh, that we didn't have you know, the Civil Rights Act back then, that black Americans were excluded from American political life? That would be more difficult. However, in our studies, when we ask people about this illusion of moral decline, Even the most liberal participants still say that people are less good than they once were. Conservatives say it louder, but it doesn't turn it on or off. So I think this is also something that can come from the liberal side of the political spectrum as well. It just looks a little different. So for instance, in the US, people often, especially from the left, talk about uh, our justice system and how it's broken. But broken is a really interesting word because broken suggests that it once worked and now doesn't. The idea that we talk about the judicial system or the educational system as being broken or we need to fix it suggests that it was once good and only now is it bad, which is a very different narrative than it's always been bad and we've been maybe slowly making it better or maybe it's gotten worse, but it's never been at a point where we would feel great. And what we really want to do is get it to that point. And that I think is just a really different case to make to people, and one that I think is more difficult because it's easier to get people fired up when you convince them that we've lost something and we need to reclaim it, rather than maybe we've never had this thing. But now, because of advances in technology or even just the way that we think about it, we can finally get it. We can finally attain this thing that we were never able to before.
2: Yeah, it's almost like the the left-leaning governments of the world need to sort of educate the masses on their cognitive biases about the past to be able to then put forward their progressive agendas. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I find that, you know, when I read your work and when I learn about these biases, it's quite confronting because as somebody on the progressive left and I'm a climate activist and a feminist, a lot of my energy is sort of put into explaining that things aren't as great as they once were at a moral level because of the neoliberal imperative, the capitalist model. It's dragged us away from you know the moral forums, the the moral what I call the moral umpires on the footy field of life. You know, so whether it be the church, whether it be the scout movement, whether it be community groups that stopped us from being so individualistic, and we've always needed these kinds of community setups to ensure that we don't you know eat ourselves you know with our individualism. So I listen to you, and I'm a little bit like, oh gosh, what if I'm wrong? What if we are just as moral? Do you find that people like me are confronted by what you've put forward in this paper?
1: <laughs> yes, because I find that a lot of people really don't like it. Some of the discourse on Twitter has just been like, obviously, this guy's wrong. I was there in the past. It was so much better. But again, I'm making a, a, a pretty narrow claim here. I mean, it's within its, itself. It's very broad. But I'm not claiming that everything across the board was better in the past or, or was the same in the past, and now it's better or it hasn't changed. In this case, these claims that people make, that people you know, are more likely to tell you a lie today than they were 50 years ago, that I think we can pretty conclusively falsify. But that doesn't mean that just everything is better or everything's the same. I think that we're in a big churn where as things change, it means we create new problems as we solve old problems. But while we do that, I think the new problems become much more salient than the success at solving the old problems. And that's part of why I think it can feel like we live in always in a unique moment of crisis, that really the crisis began in our lifetimes. And every crisis that every generation before us has faced is sort of silly and trite because they, they didn't know that the real crises were coming in our lifetimes. <laughs> Yes, and, and I think that that's the wrong way to feel about history, that, that our answer Ancestors played history on easy mode, and we are on hard mode. I think every generation plays on hard mode. And if you don't think that, if you think that the crisis of the world, the real ones began when you got here, you might think that, oh, now now the rules, we should throw them out the window, or that that we need to do things that no generation has done before. That's both true and, and not true. It's true that the problems that we face are going to be different than people in the past face. We're going to have to act differently. But it's also not true that we're the first people to ever encounter problems. So I, I don't mm. know. It's, it's a difficult balance to strike, but but that's the one that I want to strike.
2: Yeah. One of the other things that I would add to this, since you know, if we were sitting at a dinner party and I was being confronted by your thesis, I might put to you, well, as the world gets more complex and as our problems speed up, so technology means that you know having to you know deal with the implications of AI require a set of, I guess. Moral guardrails and moral quick thinking that we've never had to access quite like before. So I think there'd be an element of truth to that, surely.
1: Yes, although I think I think the the part of it where where I would feel more skeptical is is this idea. I think that the world is more complicated today, or life is more complicated today than it was in the past. Which again is is an empirical question. I, I don't have the you know the the evidence to marshal against that. But I feel skeptical of it because I think the problem is we perceive our present in full resolution. We know all of the issues and we're bombarded with information about today. We can only see the past through a telescope. And when looking at things through a telescope, they all look a little fuzzy. And that can lead us to believe that like, oh, there just wasn't as much going on back then. The issues weren't as difficult. Things were more straightforward. But you won't find a time in the past when people report like my life is simple, <laughs> like everyone ever who, who is alive thinks that things are very complicated. And so it's not clear to me, like, are we right that it's more complicated today than it used to be? I mean, I think about the sort of things that people in the past had to deal with that, you know, if you grew up in a society where there are, there are far more powers operating in the world. You know, if you're in Europe in the 1500s, and there's all these little duchies and kingdoms, like you have to relate to each of these people because they haven't been subsumed into you know one entity called Germany that you can deal with. No, you have to deal with a thousand different tiny little kingdoms, and so your diplomatic life is much more complicated than it is today. Like I don't know, these are these are s- silly little examples. Mm,
2: you do raise a really good point, actually, and I'm thinking about it as you're as you're taking down my dinner party argument that you know I'm here in Europe traveling around and I'm in a campervan on my own navigating between different destinations working out hiking routes places to camp slightly illegally for the night etc etc there's no way I could have done that when I was travelling at 18 in the early 90s it you know and I'm thinking about this quite often how complex and hard it was to just get around the world and We tend to forget about it. My bias basically sees me remember only the glorified, wonderful times, the freedom of not having apps and, you know, the internet to rely on to travel. You know, I had to rely on meeting people in the street and taking risks and and the trusting strangers on the other side of the world with no ability to call somebody if I landed in trouble. So yes, you're absolutely right. We are but a conflation of a whole range of biases. I'm wondering, Adam, how do you, as somebody who's very aware of these, and you've written about just about every bias out there, do you utilise this knowledge in your everyday living? Does it make your life easier to be aware of your cognitive biases as you go about you know, eating breakfast, making decisions? Does it help or do they just all go out the window and you just revert back to your primitive self like the rest of us? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I am always my most primitive self. No, I, I I don't feel like I'm able to to live life in some more enlightened way by having you know a catalog of cognitive biases. What knowing about psychology does for me, I hope, is make me more humble about the things that I can know and that I can't know. Yes. So even though you know I wrote that you know I've I've spent years studying the biases that emerge when people think about the present versus the past it doesn't make my feeling go away when I'm like, my life is very complicated now. It used to be way simpler. Only now do I face the real problems of my life. Like basically I am awake for the first time dealing with all this stuff. It still feels that way. But now I know that like, the fact that I have that feeling is not evidence for it being true. That I think is what knowing about psychology does for me is is hopefully give me a little humility and and to realize that conviction is extremely expensive to acquire. To really feel like you know the answer to a question takes a lot of time and work. And until you spend that time and work, like you don't get to have that conviction about empirical questions. So if you yeah. feel very sure that the world is different today than it was before, well, you should go check it out because it turns out the past is really weird. And the more you learn <laughs> about it, the crazier it is.
2: Look, You do cover a number of different biases and kind of bizarre and kind of cute human phenomenon on your Substack. One of the ones that I really like is the fact that all of us forget most of what we learn. And that's a huge relief to me because I went to university and I did half a law degree. And I remember sitting next to people who would write literally six pages of notes and I would write half a page. And, you know, look, I did okay, but I really didn't understand legal thinking and eventually pulled out. But I've often wondered, you know did these people actually remember all this stuff? Like, was it worth putting all of that extra effort into understanding the minutiae? Now, you've written something to say, well, very few of us remember what we learn and that we more or less learn or retain the vibe, the general vibe of the thing. Can you describe that in more scientific language and perhaps make others out there feel better (laughs) about their lapsed memories of, of anything to do with university?
1: yeah it's hard to describe this in scientific language because I think it is a a problem that doesn't submit itself very well to scientific inquiry and and that itself is the problem so if you treat education as the acquisition of pieces of information that can later be tested, you're going to be really disappointed how how well we do because you know if you give people a you know a chemistry test at the end of the semester and then give them that same test even two weeks later, let alone six months later, let alone six years later, they're going to do really poorly. And so if the point of taking the chemistry class was to do well on that test, I mean, what are we really doing? We're educating people for a very brief window of time. But I think we think that way because we are stuck focusing on the things that are easy to assess. It's very easy to assess, like, can you you know, do this chemical equation? It's very difficult to assess something like, do you know how to think like a chemist? Did you pick up something from this class? Did, did your mind change in any way other than just the memorization of facts, which you could look up afterward, or even the memorization of you know certain algorithms to apply that you could also look up afterward? Have you changed at all? And that's really not something you can learn from giving them a multiple choice class or uh, test or even an open answer test. These things don't lend themselves to assessment in the same way. So what I feel like I got from my psychological education was not just the acquisition of a bunch of findings and results and phenomena it was an orientation to the world. So yes. what I tried to say earlier with you know feeling more more humble about the convictions that I have about the world. Like that's a feeling that I got from spending a long time doing psychology. You, you can't give people a multiple choice question that, that's like, how humble do you feel about your ability to know how the past is different from the present? And, and like, is it one, not at all, or, or four vary? Like, it just doesn't work that way. And so I think if we think of education In this very limited term, this limited way of, you know, I'm putting facts into your head and how many of them stay there, we miss that we're actually putting something very important into people's head, which is this orientation to the world, these very deep beliefs that we have about the world. Another one being just, is it cool to learn? Which most of the time when people are trying to cram facts into your head, they're teaching you it's not cool to learn. It hurts to learn. Learning is an adversarial relationship between you and this taskmaster who, like, puts a bunch of facts out in the world, like, scatters them like pennies on the floor. And you have to grab as many as you can, but they're always falling out of your arms. And then they're going to yell stop and see how many you got. And, like, what a terrible... Experience, rather than the kind of person who like doesn't really care how many of the facts did you hold on to, but did you get the thing that was underneath the facts? The thing that I can't articulate clearly. You have to bootstrap it out of sitting in this room for a long time. Did you get that? And and that I think is best called the vibe.
2: Yeah. No, I totally get what you're saying, and I think it really does pertain to the current generation, where really, what is the point of learning the minutiae, the details when? you can really go and look it up on the internet and probably get a more accurate answer. Going straight to the, I guess, the vibe thing, the curiosity, the desire to learn, to expand on an idea, to have an opinion, to think. You know, I wound up studying philosophy and I don't remember a lot of the detail of the various you know, existential concepts. You know, I studied German existentialism and French existentialism. I don't remember the details, but I do know it taught me how to look at a problem from a whole range of angles. And I think that's really important, particularly in the current age. But it's funny, I had dinner the other night with a friend of mine, he's 74, and he's an incredible philosopher. And he can sit there and just spout out the theories and facts and so-and-so used to write in that particular chapel over there in 1873. And that was also the year. that And he doesn't have to use Google. He doesn't interrupt a dinner conversation with, hang on, let me just go and look that up. And I do wonder whether there is something lost, you know, for, for our generation, I'm, I straddle the two in that, you know, in that ability to have it all there, to have the picture, the years, the different theories and concepts all in your mind and you're able to pull them out in sort of patterns. But I take your point, in this day and age, the vibe is, is probably more valuable.
1: Yeah, the, I think it really depends on the way that you feel about all those facts that you've acquired, that if you've acquired them out of basically a desire to be close to their beauty, that I think is good. Uh, and if you use them like raw materials to do things that are interesting, that is also good. The danger, I think, is in thinking that you progress as a person, as an intellectual, as a scientist, whatever – through the acquisition of those facts, and, and I've seen people do this—that they think that what it means to progress as an academic, as a scholar, is to just enter more things in the big ledger of facts, and to be the kind of person who says, "Oh yes, that experiment you're talking about—that's Snorkworth and, and Dubson, 1977." That's—I think—that's stupid. Like, there's no point to that. And so like, it's perfectly fine to be able to rattle stuff like that off the top of your head, mm. so long as you're doing it because you you think it's cool and because you want to do something with it rather than think that the end goal is to have more of that. Yeah. And this is something that, that's really hard to get across to students when I when I teach because the problem is, well, what gets assessed, what gets tested in class is, well, did you acquire the facts? And so people will do the thing that you test them on. And so because it's hard to test people on whether they got the vibe, it kind of happens by accident.
2: Yeah. And it's I imagine it'd be very difficult to explain to students that out in the real world, it's only the vibe that counts, you know, <laughs> to be able to follow the concept, add to it, build on it and be generally enthused by it that's special. Hey, Adam, we're just about out of time, but I would really love to know now that you've, you know, handed in that nature paper and you've been doing the podcast and interview circuit on it all, what's the next thing that's fascinating you? What little quirk of human behavior is taking your interest at the moment?
1: Oh, there's, there's a lot. And and they're all much weirder because I am less interested now in putting them in the format that would come out in a journal like that. One, th- This is all very speculative, but one thing I'm really interested in is reformulating our theories of personality. That what reigns supreme in psychology right now is this thing called the big five or various – there's a few variations on it. Let's say you know all of human personality can can be usefully put into f- a few buckets. In this case, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And really anything else that you measure about a person's personality is eventually going to fall into one of those buckets. And I feel skeptical about that. And I I just think that humans are so weird and so different from one another in a way that I don't feel like we've done a good job capturing. And so I would love there to be some kind of personality assessment that made me feel like I learned something about myself when I took it or learned something about other people when they take it. And that is also based on actual psychometric principles rather than you know like which Hogwarts house are you in or the Myers Briggs. So that yeah. I'm really interested in even further afield than that. I want to know if flossing works because I fight with my dentist every time I go where they're like, "Oh, you should floss." And I'm like, "Actually, if you look at the meta meta analysis of studies of flossing, it doesn't even look like there's an effect." And so it seems pretty wild to me that this is universal health advice is that everyone should floss when we don't have any good evidence that it does anything to people. And once one of my dentists was so shaken by this that they told one of their colleagues and I got a call later on. It's hard enough to get your dentist on the phone. I've never had a dentist call me before after my appointment. And yes. uh, He called it. He said, hey, I heard what you said. And he's like, I totally get it. The evidence isn't there. But in my clinical experience, I would actually rather have someone only floss than only brush. And I thought, this is wild that that people <laughs> think this way, and if flossing is so good, it should be so easy to find an effect. Like you shouldn't mm. have to even run a very good study to, to see it.
2: Absolutely, as a non-flosser, and in Australia we're not as full-on with our flossing as Americans are. Music to my ears, to be honest. I've you know my, my teeth are in great shape, I believe. So you know, n equals one experiment right there. <laughs> but yeah, it's a bit like the <laughs> yeah, it's a bit yeah. like the three liters of water a day, the ten thousand steps, the calories in, calories out fallacy. I mean, we buy into them because they seem to make sense but our bodies and you know we're talking about the bodies our bodies here again with dental floss don't necessarily work to those linear arguments and so yeah it it really generally gets quite a few headlines when we we do a Everything you thought about your teeth was wrong. Kind of headline. It it gets people going. Yeah,
1: yeah. It could totally turn out that it's actually a good thing to do. But but it, we should have better evidence if we're going to tell everybody to do this. And then the the last thing that we're working on is I'm trying to get more people involved in doing science. So the the last post that I that I put out was inviting people to do science and post it on the internet. I now have a Discord going for people who are trying to do science independently, basically because I think we've lost the diversity of people taking different approaches. And I think publishing in journals is one approach. I'm glad that some people do it. I don't think that everyone should do it. And so I'm trying to create a space for people who don't want to do that, to do science in a different way. So those are some plates that I'm spinning
2: yeah well good luck with the internet opiners there because i know that twitter in particular nice nicely dying art form however is full of scientists trying to justify their worth by really going hard on you know journal publication peer review the whole thing but yeah i take your point i think science can take all different forms and yeah i i I very much enjoy what you do on substack it's fascinating and i will put the link to your substack in the show notes it is called experimental history and And you put a lot of care into what you share. And of course, you bring in a fair bit of comedy. You're a stand up comic on the side. So you keep it fun. Adam, thank you so much for enduring this and for, you know, waiting for me while I reverse parked my camper van out of a very tight place in Annecy in France at high altitude. And uh, yeah, the conversation was great. And good luck with everything that you're working on. I will look forward to being challenged further by your Substack posts.
1: Thank you so much for having me and good luck getting the the cow manure off your shoes.
2: Mercifully, Adam is a very generous mind and podcast guest. As to his theses, cognitive biases are a very worthwhile thing to wrap our heads around, I think. We all operate to them. This doesn't mean, of course, our conclusions are wrong they may well be right. The world might very well be suffering a moral deficit or at least be struggling to grapple morally with what's currently on its plate, which may well be more complex and existentially threatening than in years gone by. But what it does mean is that there is room for grey, for adjustments, for compassion and understanding, and for some caution before we, and I should say I, make sweeping statements about life. Cognitive biases can also explain stuff that we find dispiriting, like why make America great again as a slogan does appeal and why conservative, regressive leanings are so hard to counter. I encourage everyone to read Adam's Substack post about how and why we think the general public are stupid. I can fall for this one myself. So can pollsters and politicians and activists when we're trying to work out why those out there somewhere do what they do. When we refuse to fall for this cognitive bias, we can work to a better assumption and bring everyone along with us and build better tribes. I'm also very happy to invite everyone listening to me here to send through suggestions for guests or ideas that can further challenge the way I'm currently thinking through various ideas. Post your suggestions, as always, on Substack. I will find your comments there, and that is where I do all social media feedback these days. I'll put links in the notes and where all good links are shared about the place, Linktree, on Instagram, etc. Okay, I'm off to clean my hiking shoes and to find a less legal place to park my van for the night. I'll see you next time.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.